That's it for announcements. Let's make our way to James chapter 2 as we continue our study through the letter of James. And as you guys make your way in your Bibles to James chapter 2, let me just remind you that as James began his letter, he was writing this to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And specifically, who he was writing to is those that had started there in the early church in Jerusalem, and then they were dispersed through persecution, mostly throughout all the Roman Empire. And so James is writing this letter knowing what all these people have gone through. They've been driven off and away from their families and their homes and their loved ones. They've essentially lost everything for the message of the gospel. And James writes this letter to them to address the persecution. And he starts by saying, hey, all you have fallen into trials, uh, count it as all joy. You should be excited about the trials. Now, uh, to understand, not excited about the idea of persecution and being ran off from their home, but the idea that as God allows trials in our life, what he's trying to do is actually grow us, to mature us, to move us along in this relationship. He knows this well enough to know we're happy to just stay put in our tight, tiny, uh, comfortable little area. And so God allows trials in our life to actually advance in our relationship with him. But Satan will use temptations inside of the trials to try to trip us up along the way. And so all these things that will happen and come our way to try to essentially get us to quit. That's ultimately what the enemy wants to do. He wants to seek and to kill and to destroy and to get us to quit in what the Lord has put before us. Now, as we wrapped up last week with the first chapter, what we saw is James focusing on relationships, and he mentions the tongue. I talked to you about how the Lord has given us two ears for a reason. We should probably use them in proportion to one another. We should be twice as quick to listen as we are to want to get our words out. But oftentimes, instead of listening to understand, we spend our time listening to respond. I'm listening, building up an answer, or somehow I want to get my words out to express myself. But James encourages us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And what we find is as this last section of James focuses on chapter 1 of relationships, how often are relationships damaged by the tongue, by the words that come out of our mouth that aren't closely checked and monitored. And so many times these are broken down. Now, finally, James wraps up chapter 1 talking about religion. And I shared with you, and apparently I didn't offend all of you because you came back, uh, is that Christianity is not a religion. It's not. What a religion is, is religion is finite man's attempt to link up, to relink. That's what religion means, to relink to an infinite God. And you think about us in our finite state, how could we relink to an infinite God? It's ridiculous, right? Christianity is instead a relationship. This is where an infinite God poured himself into a man to reconnect with us, to give us the opportunity to fix what was broken. We know this relationship is broken from an early age. Those questions we ask in adolescence, why am I here? What is this all about? The purpose of all that's happening. We know because Ecclesiastes tells us we've got an eternal hole in our heart. We know this thing is broken. And so how do we repair it? And the reality is we cannot but we know one who can. And so he is all about the relationship repair business. And as he repairs this relationship for us, relinking us to our heavenly father, what is the natural outflow of that? It's to want to tell people about it, to want to share in that relationship, to share how we were repaired and restored with God the father. So now moving on to chapter two, 
As James is continuing to address this early church, he says in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. In verse 3, you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in the good place. And say to the poor man, You stand there or sit at my footstool. Or in other words, on the floor. In verse 4, Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so what James is writing to here. To this early churches, do not have prejudices when it comes to your church, your relationships, and those that you invite into your inner circle. As we start off, leads me to ask you this question. What if I told you um, today, directly following the services, which I am going to attempt to get you out on time, maybe, um, after service, uh, you are going to have a, a lunch guest. Donald J. Trump, the former president of the United States, was coming to your house for lunch directly following service. And I know that even as I say that, there are some of you that have got that feeling in the pit of your stomach, right? You're, you're feeling a little nervous, hands are sweaty, you're thinking of all the things you left to rush out to get the church on time everywhere throughout your house. The underwear is not picked up off the floor, there's dirty dishes in the sink, uh, who knows what the kids' room looks like, oh my gosh, Donald Trump's coming over for lunch, and we get ourselves so worked up, we got to get out of the house. We got to hurry up after church. You've already checked out listening to me. We got to get, get out the finest china. Wait a minute. Don't mention china. Donald Trump's coming over. We're going to get out our finest plates. We're going to, we're going to get all this together to be able to have a wonderful lunch together, right? Now, what if I told you, hey, after service today, uh, I'd like you to be host to a homeless man. I've got a, a man who hasn't eaten in three or four days. He's going to come over to your house today. And the question is, do you have the same feeling in the pit of your stomach? Do you feel the same way, the same amount of nervousness? Does it rise up inside you? And the answer for some of you might be, absolutely, I feel I keep my house in order. I'm always ready for company, and I wouldn't treat anyone any differently. And for those of you that can say that, I think I can speak for the rest of us when I say, <laughs> Now, sadly, I worked for an entire week on that part of the message. That's how we feel, right? Like, yeah, right, you would feel like that. Because the reality is we all have preconceived notions. We all have prejudices that are built in. We have an idea of wanting to impress someone that we find to be important in our world. We don't deal with people the same way because of our sinful state. We have partiality. This is what James is addressing. And ironically enough, the people that we desire to impress the most oftentimes are the least interested in anything you have to say. Isn't that amazing how that works out? Now, those prejudices that we're talking about, what is happening is those are invading the church. And oh, by the way, um, they continue to invade the church. But what James is trying to bring our attention back to is don't focus on one person over the other. Instead, focus on each all the same, all alike, because the reality is it's actually the poor that are more likely to receive the gospel than the rich. Now, as I say that, there are some of you that are already bothered. So only the poor can receive the gospel? If I've got a few dollars in my bank account, I can't. Uh, it's important to understand when Scripture talks about poverty, especially related to spirituality, the Lord is not talking about your wallet. He's talking about the poor in spirit. 
who are the poor in spirit. Jesus, making this point in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of heaven. It's those that don't regard what they have, that don't try to prop themselves up, the poor in spirit. What the poor in spirit realize is that every single thing they've been given is a gift of God. What James says in chapter 1 is that all good gifts come down from the Father of lights. Anything good you've got in your life, any good relationship, anything good financially you've been blessed with, family-wise you've been blessed with, all of it has come from the Father of lights. You didn't do it. Much to your chagrin, it's not how great you are. It's because he just loves you that much. And as we begin to realize this, we understand that this is not what I put up here, a function of my 401k, but a function of my heart. That's ultimately what the Lord's after. That's what he's looking for. In fact, Isaiah chapter 66, at the beginning of chapter 66, the Lord is making it clear through the pen of Isaiah that everything that's been created has been by his hand. Don't misunderstand that maybe I did something or I've got a part in this. It's all from God. And in verse 2, what he says is, For all things my hand has made, and all, thing, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But this one I will look on, him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And this is who the Lord is addressing this is who we are to be, a people that are actually poor in spirit. Now, chapter 2, verse 5, as we continue our journey through this second chapter, James says, listen, my beloved brethren. As we start this, by the way, James will continue to do this throughout the book. He will make a point, and then he will drive it home with a hammer. So if any of you feel like you're being driven home by a hammer, that's the point James is trying to make. So here he says, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Go back to what we just looked at in Isaiah chapter 66. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you were called? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so James here, driving home this point, and what they would do, Jewish synagogue, and even in their churches, they would take it, the concept from the synagogue is they would have these special seats up front for those that were rich and more prominent, and they would usher them up to the front to the good seats. Now to that, I would say congratulations to you guys. You are so holy, you left these front rows open. Wow, you've done a great job. Way to be super spiritual. But here, they would usher them down to these front seats, and they would leave the bad seats, the seats on the floor, for the poor and, and those that they did not highly regard. Now, as we see this taking place, and as James is writing, immediately I think of the old phrase, birds of a feather flock together. And the reality is that is very much true. It was true in church then, and it's true in church now. And that in and of itself is not a sin, by the way. There are some of you that just have more in common with each other than you do other people. And naturally, there will be relationships formed and groups formed, and we'll gravitate towards one another. And so as that happens, note that this even happened for Jesus. He had 12 that he hung around with more than anybody else. 
And even inside that group of 12, he had three that he, hang, he hung around with even more than the 12, Peter, James, and John. And yet, here's the key, and here's where we get it wrong. We tend to regard people, and we tend to shut others out. And that is not what we are to do. Chapter 2. This is how Jesus operated when it came to trusting in man or believing in mankind. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. This is Jesus. He knew exactly what was in man. It didn't matter if they were rich, poor, tall, skinny, short, fat. It didn't matter who they were, light, dark. He knew what was in man. Sin permeated from man. It was in their heart. And so he didn't regard man as special. He wasn't looking for the favor of man, only for the favor of the Lord. And so that is the key designation. For as we interact with each other and we don't have partiality or prejudice, what it'll look like is, in verse 8, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, you do well. This is what James says. Now, Jesus, when he was asked by a young lawyer, hey, what is the greatest of all the commandments? His response was, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second commandment is likened to it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commands hang all the law and all the prophets. All the scripture we hold in our hands all hangs on this simple concept of loving him first, and then loving people more than ourselves, as ourselves. We have no problem loving ourselves. We're really good at that part. But loving others the way we love ourselves. Now, the reality is, uh, this is requoted by James. It was also, interestingly enough, quoted by Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, that book we just finished that was all about grace. Here we are, and James gets the rap of being all about works. So which one is it? And, and the answer is yes. But here he ties this together because it's, it's all interlinked. It's interwoven. But the reality is, me and my flesh, I'll just be very transparent. I treat people differently based upon what I think I might gain out of this relationship. That's what we do, isn't it? We treat people differently based upon what we might gain. And this is what James is trying to drive at. This is the prejudice that exists within our heart, which leads me to ask the question, what would you do if Jesus walked in? Not Jesus in all his glory. I'm talking about Jesus living on the earth, that Jesus. What would you do if he walked in? You know the one that was born from a teen pregnancy? Yeah, that one. Hey, did you know, by the way, Joseph's not even his real dad. The whispers would already start, wouldn't they? And to think of, here's Jesus, so poor, so coming into a family that didn't even have enough means to be able to have him born in a proper hospital. He was born in a, a lowly, dirty manger. That guy? Who didn't, apparently, according to Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, even have a home. Jesus says there that foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He had to borrow a pillow just to have something to sleep on. This same Jesus, by the way, who as he was asked about taxes and money and who should we give money to, should it be Caesar or to God, which one, they thought they were going to trip him up. And he asked this question in Mark chapter 12. He says, bring me a denarius 
And then he, and then he proceeds to say, whose head is on it? And they all answer, Caesar. And he, he says, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to the Lord what is the Lord's. Give to God what is God's. And they all marveled. But the reason I bring that up is in verse 15, he says, bring me a denarius. Do you understand that he didn't even have pocket change to be able to make his point? He had to borrow some. But what I come to is that this same Jesus, do you realize he even had to borrow a cross? I bring that up because that cross wasn't his. That cross was actually mine. And it was yours. And so here's Jesus on a borrowed cross, paying the price that you and I actually owe. He even ended up borrowing a tomb from Joseph of Arimathea. Now the beautiful part is he borrowed the tomb because he only was going to need it a few days. <laughs> he was going to check out of that. Now why on earth would the God of the universe go to all this trouble to borrow money, to borrow a home, to be so lowly and poor, to even borrow a cross for you and I. Why would he do it? Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says this, that looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus do it. It wasn't that he enjoyed the cross. He endured it. It wasn't that he loved the idea of being shamed and having all of mankind's sin placed upon him. He did it. He despised it, but he did it for the joy that was set before him. And that joy is you and I. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, there was this parable that's, that Jesus shared, and he said that heaven is likened to a man. In verse 44, is, is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. You see, that man was King Jesus, who for the joy set before him, the joy of that treasure, he sold everything that he had, poured it all out there. Why? For the field? No, for the treasure, for you and I. That's how valuable each and every one of us are, regardless of our color or our social status or our political views. This is how valuable we are to him. He gave it all for us. We should be humbled considering that. Now, verse 10, James continues. He says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not uh, murder. Now, if you did not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so, James is going back to the law. If you want to have a works-based salvation, here's the issue with it. You're going to have to keep all the law. This is not a balancing of the scales. What if I do a little more good than I do bad? Surely I'll sneak. What he's saying here, and it's clear throughout Scripture, is if you're going to keep the law, you've got to keep it in its entirety. 
Now, James uses these extreme examples of adultery and murder to point out the fact that if you break even one little law, and oh, by the way, the Old Testament doesn't just have a top 10 list. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. Good luck keeping those. Now, for us New Testament Christians, I've actually heard this said before. Here's the deal. The law doesn't apply to me because I'm living now by the New Testament. In fact, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. You ever heard somebody say that? That is a, usually a sign of someone who has not actually read the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I mean, have you actually read what Jesus shares in Matthew chapter 5 through 7? Because what Jesus said there is that uh, the law says do not commit adultery. But I say to you that if any of, of you looks at a woman in lust, you've already committed adultery. Oh-oh! The law says you should not murder. But I say that if any of you has hated his brother, you've already committed murder. Now the law got real, didn't it? And as we hear what the Sermon on the Mount says, and we read the words of Jesus, as he shares with people, look, if you want to live by the law, this is the kind of law you're going to have to live by. It's not just your actions. It's, even, it's not only external, it's internal. Are you sure you want to go that route? And when I read that, what I come back with is, Man, I need mercy. I'm going to need an awful lot of mercy. And the definition of mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Because what I deserve is to be damned for all of eternity. I'm toast. It's over for me. I've already messed this thing up years and years ago. And so what I need so desperately is mercy. Now verse 13 excuse me, verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who, show, who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is the law of liberty all about? What is the work of Christ all about? It's giving us grace. That is getting what I do not deserve. And it's about mercy. That is not getting what I do deserve. I deserve hell and death, but what Jesus has allowed me to have is mercy. Now I'm going to turn really quickly to Luke chapter 6. This is a spot where if you go to a place that does a lot of topical messages, this is a, a spot where pastors will typically go. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. And usually when a pastor goes here, it's typically because the tithe are low and we're looking to bolster things up a little bit. And so they'll wind up in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, and read, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For the same measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Now let's pat the plates. <laughs> Give, and it will be given. And so we get really excited about that message. But here's the thing. Uh, the struggle I have with that message is, Jesus wasn't talking about money. It's taken out of context. Do you know what he was talking about? Mercy. Verse 36, right before it says, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. Now when you read it, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, Shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure you use it, it will be used back to you. Now put in the correct context of mercy. Do you understand that when you're standing before a true and holy God, 
What do you want to have at your disposal? Money or mercy? I don't know about you, but I'm going to be crying out for mercy. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what we need most, and most importantly, we need mercy. And it is in direct proportion to how I'm willing to give others mercy. My wife uh, used to be a school teacher, and she was also a softball coach. And for years, she would tell her kids, and now she's taking it to our little family. She would say to them, especially when they would go out to eat somewhere, if you've got to take a bus of junior high girls, you know what a nightmare that can be, uh, out to eat. And so as she would take them on the bus, she would tell them a couple things. Uh, first of all, and this one's not as holy, she would say, uh, people come to places like this to get away from people like you. That one's not as holy. But the other one she would say, and that's true though, they do typically. But the other one that's not as, that is more holy is um, folks won't remember uh, your name oftentimes and they won't probably remember a whole lot about you. But what they will remember is how you made them feel. How did you make someone feel today? And so much of that can be boiled down into church as well. How did you make someone feel? And oftentimes, that determines or dictates whether or not people come back. It's not the message. It's not the dynamic speaker. It's not, wow, that guy was so on fire. His message was tremendous. Don't worry, that message is next week, by the way, if you're wondering. That'll, it'll happen soon. That's not it. I can say the most uh, profound thing that the Lord has given me. But if folks don't feel welcome, if they don't feel cared for, if they don't feel loved, the reality is not going to come back. But vice versa, if we love and we take people into our circle and we make them feel loved and cared for, I can say some boneheaded stuff. You're all shaking your head like, yeah, we've heard it. I, it can happen. People will come back, you see. Not because of the message, but actually because of mercy. Mercy is key. And the reality is is that in the New Testament, there's only three times that Jesus said, go and learn blank. One of those is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, and he says, go and learn this. And by the way, if Christ says go and learn, I would suggest that we go and learn. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So many times we want to sacrifice and we want to leave all the mercy completely out of it. Because the reality for each of us is uh, most of the time my sin looks way worse on you than it does on me. I can look at my sin on you and go, man, that looks really bad. In the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 12, Nathan up to David, the King David. And at this point, David is high on his throne. He's seen as much success in his kingdom as any king has ever seen, probably would ever see again after that. And so here's David. He's been super successful. And Nathan the prophet comes in and says, Hey, Dave, I got a story for you. Um, there was this really rich man, and he had many sheep and many flocks. And boy, he had it going on. And he lived next door to a really poor guy who only had one little ewe lamb. And boy, his family loved the little ewe lamb. They, in fact, invited him into the house. They treated it like a pet. They named him Lamb Chop. They had him right in there in the house with all the kids. And the rich man, he was having visitors for the weekend, and so he was going to throw a party. But instead of taking one of his sheep or his flock and fixing it for dinner, 
he had the lamb stolen from his neighbor and brought over and cooked for his friends. Now David, after hearing this story, was furious. He slammed his fist down. He said, this man will surely die and pay back fourfold. Now, funny enough, the law actually said that he should only pay back fourfold, not die on top of it. But Nathan the prophet looked at David right square in the eye and he said, you're the man, David. You're the man. What he was referring to is an incident that David had covered up from years before, where he man's wife slept with her, gotten her pregnant. When Bathsheba sent him a note and said, hey, I'm with child, he sent Uriah, one of his own 50 mighty men, he sent him to the front lines of the battle or he would lose his life that day. And then David swept in and collected poor Bathsheba, the new widow, and took her into his house to care for her. Man, what a great guy. And nobody was the wiser. But your sin is sure to find you out. That's what David learned. And here in this spot, he had been found out. All these years later, his sin was completely and exposed. And I share that story to say Psalm 51 is a psalm of David that he writes after this whole incident has been exposed with Bathsheba. And Psalm 51, verse 1, listen to what David says to the Lord. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. What did David ask for? Mercy. Lord, have mercy upon me. I have messed this whole thing up. Going on to verse 16, he says, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite. These, O God, you will not despise. The reason the Lord showed him mercy was because he had a broken and a contrite heart. He was poor in spirit. Lord, here I am, I'm a broken man. I can't fix all that I've done. Would you have mercy on me? Mercy triumphs over judgment, you see. This is how we are called to be as a church. Merciful before we are judgmental. Now, continuing on, in verse uh, 14. Oh, wrong chapter. Chapter 2, verse 14 James says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and if one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit him? He's gone directly off of mercy, and now he's saying, what what happens if someone who is naked and destitute in need of food comes to you and asks for help? What does that look like? What happens if you just say, hey, I'm praying for you, brother. Oh, I'm praying for you. But he's still freezing to death. What did we actually do in that situation? And the answer, of course, is nothing at all. Now, verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. 
But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? James driving home yet another point related to mercy. And many people, James is saying, will say, look, I believe in Jesus. He's my Savior. Well, congratulations. Has there been any change in your life to speak of? And I'm afraid in the spot we're in in the Bible Belt, this is often where folks park themselves. On a confession that was made long ago where belief was professed, but the reality is no change actually took place. And I'm afraid when there has been no change in a person's life, their words are completely and utterly meaningless. There is no impact to them whatsoever. What repentance actually is, is a change in mind that leads to a change in action. What action is actually changed? Have you continued to live, always live? Because for many, we have what Spurgeon calls spiritual spasms. That these things happen throughout our life where we have a little twitch, like a dead man, a spasm like that. We almost come to life, but then we go right back into the same old, same old. And for those folks, my concern is that they are going to bust hell wide open and not have any idea the way that they were headed. What James shares is that you say that there is one God, you do well. Congratulations, even the demons do that and tremble. You remember the story when Jesus comes across the Sea of Galilee there in the Gadarenes and he's met by the demon-possessed man. And as the demon-possessed man, this is a person possessed by demons, sees Jesus, he says, what would you have to do with me, O son of David? That's his messianic title. He knew exactly who Jesus was. Have you come to torment me before the allotted time? He knew what God said and how he was going to do it. But what's the difference between the demon-possessed man and of one of a repented life? It's faith. There is no faith. There is no obedience. There is no change for the demonic. And so they believe, but they do not change. And true surrender will always produce fruit in a life. We are not called to judge, to be fruit inspectors. And by the way, if you're going to be a fruit inspector, I would recommend you start with your own tree. Start in your own life. What does the fruit look like from my tree? Do, do I represent a changed life? And I would tell you as a young man who professed Christ at an early age, at the ripe old age of six, baptized at seven, the only thing I actually had throughout my life were spiritual spasms. There was no fruit to actually show a changed life until the age of 36, and in a, a deep, dark hole on my knees in my bedroom with my hands lifted up, the only thing I could say was, I give up. I surrender. It's all yours. Change me. I, I need to be changed from the inside out. And the reality was, on that day, he began to change me. Opened up to him. I would encourage you, if you have not had true surrender, to do that same thing in your life. Oftentimes, we tend to look religious like we have it all together, like we got it going on. Our friends, our family, almost buy it. As John the Baptist was out in the wilderness, he was baptizing people in Matthew chapter 3. And as people were coming to be baptized, these same religious came to him. And as John greets them, he was so, when he greeted them, 
in verse 8, he says, Oh, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Well, John was not the softest character. But what he says in verse 8, it bears repeating. He says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. You guys got it all going on on the outside, but you don't have any fruit that shows that you've repented. There's no sign that you've turned. So it's not, what James is not saying is for us to have a works-based faith, but instead for us to have faith-based works. That as we have this kind of faith in our life, the natural outcropping of that faith is, I want to help. I want to do something. Jesus has done so much for me, I cannot wait to do something for him. It's an excited return. It's a, a, an outcropping, a growing of our faith from the inside out, not from the outside in. Now, as we head down the home stretch in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or mature. In verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God counted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And you see that then that a man is justified by works and not faith only. Verse 25, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers? Speaking of that story there in Jericho, when she received them before Jericho was, was destroyed and sent them out another way. Verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So here James gives two examples as we wrap up today. The first he gives is Abraham, the father, the Jewish father of the faith. And he also gives us Rahab, a, a Gentile prostitute there in Jericho. Now, interestingly enough, as he gives us both a Jewish example and a Gentile example, do you realize that um, they're both listed in Matthew chapter 1, which is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. They're both in the family tree of King Jesus, much like he's addressing now the early church made up of Gentiles and Jews alike. He's saying this story is for all y'all. Listen up. Now, focusing specifically on the faith of Abraham here, he draws us back to this story that's highlighted. Abraham, he is communicating with God, and God shares with him in Genesis verse 6, and his faith, his belief in God was accounted to him for righteousness. This is the same verse, by the way, that Paul uses in Galatians that we just studied to share why we are saved by grace through faith. Now, James is saying it's works. So which one is it? Are these two in contrast? Are they conflicting? The answer is no. It's works that come as a result of faith. It just proves out what is going on inside us. He's going to go on to say in, about the story of Abraham with his son Isaac. Now, you recall that as Abraham is being communicated with by God, that God says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Yet what he did not have was a child. It's kind of a problem when you're going to be the father of many nations. And so it was years later when finally his wife Sarah would give birth to Isaac at the ripe old age of 100. So funny that they actually named him Isaac, which means laughter. And now you fast forward years later, and God comes to him in Genesis chapter 22, 
Perhaps, I believe, Abraham was around 130, which would have made Isaac around 30 years of age. The Bible stories always show baby Isaac. But at least in, in my story, I'm painting him as a 30-year-old man. And so here we have Abraham being visited again by God. And this time God says, hey, I want you to take your son, you know, the one I promised you, your only begotten son, and take him to a place I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice him. Can you imagine can you imagine the drop in his gut when God told him that? And so he obediently goes about his way. He takes Isaac with him. And they make their way to Mount Moriah where God showed him. And as they're on their way up the mountain, Isaac with the wood of the sacrifice on his back communicating to his dad, Hey, Dad, you know, we, we're going up here to sacrifice to the Lord. Um, we've got the wood for the altar, and we've got the fire, but uh, where's the sacrifice at? <laughs> and Abraham tells him in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8. He said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now, a better translation of that is God will provide himself a sacrifice not for himself. And so as they make their way up that direction, what we find is the altar is built, Isaac is placed on the altar, and Abraham is getting ready to plunge the knife into the chest of his son, his only begotten son. We're in verse 12. And the Lord said, Do not lay a hand on the lad, and do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He puts a stop to this whole thing. What God was doing there in that spot was he was drawing out the faith of Abraham, the faith that he believed all those years earlier that was accounted to him for righteousness. In chapter 15, he was actually saved, but that saving, that righteousness was actually shown. His faith was shown through his obedience all those years later. It was on display right there. And so it was not faith and works. You guys know that. That anything we add to our faith makes it null and void. We don't need to add anything to our faith. Jesus did all the work for us. It's not faith and works. It's a faith that works. This was a natural result of the obedience of Abraham doing what he was called to do. And here's the thing. For Abraham, he didn't know exactly how God was going to work this out. In fact, what Hebrews chapter 11 tells us is that he had enough faith to believe that if he plunged that knife into Isaac, that God was going to have to raise him from the dead. He had that kind of faith. But that kind of faith did not occur on day one of the relationship. It was years later, decades later. important to understand is the Lord is asking you to do things. He's calling you to a place of obedience. He's not going to call you to do something that he's not already prepared you to be able to do right here and right now. He's going to grow you from faith to faith, from glory to glory. And as he grows us in faith, he's going to give us the ability to be obedient. And so many times that obedience, we have no idea how that's going to play out years later. Maybe even after we're dead and gone, passed off the scene. You see, Abraham has no idea that thousands of years later, that this whole scene that we just went through, this whole thing from Genesis chapter 22, all pointed to the cross. 
Here's Jesus fulfilling the will of the Father, much like Isaac, who, by the way, if he was a 30-year-old man, do you think Abraham stood any chance of being able to overpower Isaac and forcing him onto that altar? Not a chance. Which tells you that Isaac willingly laid down his life at the Father's request. All this to point to what Jesus would do with the wood upon his back, God making himself a sacrifice for us. But none of that would Abraham have understood. And so too, it's true with us that so many times we're called and asked to do things that we don't ever fully understand what God is up to. We don't get the opportunity to see how all this is going to play out. And oftentimes, when you're asked to be obedient, what the world will look at, just like with Abraham, the world will look upon your obedience and say, it's too much. That's a sacrifice. It's too much. But for an Abraham, and I would encourage you, as you walk with Jesus, understand he will take care of you every step of the way. This is what a lifetime of obedience looks like. Knowing that our Father loves us so much that even if it involves raising His Son from the dead, He was going to take care of Him every single step of the way. And so, Father, we thank You and we praise You for Your Word. Some of these things, Lord, they are really easy to speak about, even preach about. And they are far harder to live. I thank you, Father, for showing us a path, for being patient with us. Even when I don't get the obedience piece right, Lord, I thank you for giving multiple opportunities, decades of opportunities to obey. I thank you for the peace that comes from obedience. The peace of knowing that you're going to take care of us every single step of the way. We don't always get to know how. We don't always get to know why or where. But what we know is that just by putting one foot in front of the other, simple obedience, that you're going to see us through to the end. Lord, thank you for these pictures. Thank you for these examples and symbols for us to be able to follow after. Thank you, Lord, for righteous Abraham and even righteous Rahab, who just through belief had it accounted to them to be a part of the family of Christ. Help us to be those that believe like that, have that kind of faith, have that desire to be obedient to that degree. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray.